future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. is Monday, September 26, 2022. Welcome to Raging Chickens Out to Coop Live. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. On Out to Coop Live, we talk to progressives, activists, and troublemakers of all sorts, right from our own backyards and from across the country. Shouldn't have drank all that bubble water so fast. <laughs> you can uh, also join us at the end of our week for our Friday Politics Roundup, where we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. And, you know, once or twice monthly, we've got the Wednesday show with Cyril Michalaka. Cyril, of course, is the editor-in-chief at the Bucks County Beacon, and he'll join me to join, drill down into Bucks County, Pennsylvania, international politics. You can get all our shows by subscribing to our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Well, five bucks a month, literally. Good cup of coffee, decent beer, five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress and support all of our shows. You can also help out the show by heading to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And if you're listening to this as a podcast, you know, give us that five-star review. Leave us the comment, right? All of those things help us get to more people, help other people find our show, and help amplify the reach of the people that we bring on and the work that we talk about in our community. For more PA Progressive Talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, really wherever you get your stream, you'll find Rick. Head on over to the ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast, the amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind the podcast, Rock the House. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus and subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. And literally, it's a show you should be following uh, in the lead up to the midterm elections. I mean, you should be generally anyways, but, you know, uh, right now, especially good. Attention all you gamers out there, the Game In, two ends. The Game In is a Quakertown-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show. They've got everything for retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. And kids, like, you might be just getting yourself a little discount if you get A's on your report card. Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at the Game In. That's with two N's. If you got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. Special shout out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at @sagadayman. Two ends at @sagadayman on Twitter. And look, folks, don't let Paul Martino and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly community-rooted pack to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. 
for putting small dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Whoo! Well, tonight, yep, tonight, 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 here we are once again. Well, on tonight's show, um, we are going to be, one, want to hear what's on your mind. Um, we're going to probably dig into a couple of articles that I've been looking at and um, want to find out what's happening in your neck of the woods. Um, really drop into chat and spill the beans. Um, I'd like to hear from you. Um, might talk about some articles I'm reading for a class that I'm teaching. So uh, I, put, I got a link uh, to those articles in tonight's show notes. One of them is called We Are Not All In This Together, A Case for Advocacy, Factionalism, and Making the Political Personal. That is written by yours truly. Yes, indeed. Uh, it's a article that uh, got published as part of a, a collection called Unruly Rhetorics, Protest, Persuasion, and Publics. Um, I talk a little bit about that tonight. Um, there's this other brief article. This this one I'm actually reading for one of my classes. Um, we're going to be talking about it tomorrow. It's called What is Peak Indifference? A Theory of Planner for Change. And this is uh, by Cory Doctorow. Um, we had Cory Doctorow on the show, God, it must be a year ago now, um, talking about some stuff that was going on in terms of censorship and kind of big tech and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, some of the books that he had put out, um, we talked about, uh, one of his books. So, uh, great writer, um, and just writes is more productive than anybody I know. And kind of like writing, I just, I, I don't know how the guy finds his energy, but uh, amazing stuff. But this is a really short piece. Um, um, he had published up on his medium and it's kind of a useful way of thinking, Excuse me, but a bunch of stuff. So maybe talk about that tonight. We'll also probably talk about the new article in the Philly Inquirer. Uh, Philly Inquirer. I don't know why I said it like that. The Philly, Inqu Philly Inquirer uh, about the Penridge School Board District's upcoming vote. That's, uh, well, at least discussion whether they get to a vote tonight or not is uh, we shall see. They say probably there's not going to be action on it until next month. Uh, but next month is only a week away, right? So, um, and that has to do with these policies on student expression and teacher advocacy um, and kind of supporting uh, LGBTQ students um, in the schools. As we know, uh, Central Bucks has been a hotspot for um, this, you know, anti-LGBTQ stuff and policies on, um, you know, you know, gagging people so that they can't talk about stuff in the classroom. Uh, can't show outward supports for students um, and threaten to kind of uh, be big brother in the classroom, kind of report them to their parents if they uh, should want to be referred to by other pronouns. But um, you know the story. Um, but yeah, so Philly Inquirer had a piece of there about uh, Philly Inquirer. I'm sorry about the Penridge stuff. So we'll probably talk a little bit about that. Um, oh, Ross says he's seeing a black screen. Is that happening for everybody? Ross, are you you're seeing a bra, a black screen here? You might want to refresh your screen just to see if uh, that's it. Oh, Penridge meeting is tomorrow. Uh, Jenny Stevens got in, so it's not tonight. Um, the meeting is tomorrow. Sorry about that. Um, anybody else out there seeing a black screen, or is it just Ross? 
we shall see. Uh, sorry about that, if that's the case. Um, anyways, um, kind of let's get into it a little bit. So um, I guess I guess let's start with the Penridge stuff. So, I, and it actually has, you know, we're probably going to talk a little bit too, um, thanks to one of our Twitter warriors, uh, Starry-Eyed. Um, Starry-Eyed basically... Um, was kind of posing a bunch of questions and kind of stops. We were going back and forth a little bit on Twitter. So I thought that um, it'd be good to talk about some of the, um, the teachers union stuff. And she was kind of uh, responding to me uh, with, with basically some screenshots I gave of this article. And we could talk a little bit about what the issues are. So let me look, we could dive into that part of it. So this, this uh, article in the Philadelphia Inquirer uh, by uh, Una Gooden Smith it basically says, okay, it's a Penridge school board is debating policies under teacher advocacy. Uh, here's where those guidelines stand, right? And just kind of an overview saying, here's the kind of stuff that's coming up. There's been some alterations in the original policy. There was this policy on student expression that seemed like it was going to like basically come down on any, you know, outward display of you know, support, you know, I mean, the question was, if you wore like a rainbow shirt, was that going to be a problem? Or if you, uh, you know, uh, decided that you were going to wear a cross because, you know, you're a good Christian. Was that a problem because of your student expression? You cannot display any student expression, you know, I mean, something like this. Um, and there was a lot of debate, discussion about that. And now the school board is saying that the discussion is going to be solely around um it was just about, you know, the rules for posting flyers around campus, around, you know, the schools and stuff. But, you know, this is the this is the issue is like there's a big question. And I think that um, there was a couple of folks that were quoted in the article uh, from the Educational Law Center in Philadelphia and some folks from the um, uh, ACLU. And they're talking about the problems with the kind of policies that suggest right or raise concerns that certain kinds of expressions could be um, censored or you could get in trouble for them is going to have a kind of cooling um, effect right a chilling effect i should say on kind of people because they're not going to want to get in trouble. Students are not going to want to kind of, um, you know, wear something that they think that the school board is going to come after them for. And teachers are not going to want to say certain things if their job is threatened. So there's all these kind of concerns that go into um, go into these policies. So there's also a history, right? And this is what's so difficult about reading articles about what's happening in the school board or listening to statements that are coming out from, uh, um, you know, the the superintendent of the schools or from the school board about what is going to be allowed and what's not allowed and what the policy really means, because they all use this language of we're just trying to make sure that uh, everyone's going to have their speech rights protected. And we just want to make sure that um, everybody is going to be able to do what they want. And matter of fact, Ricky Chaikin, right, Ricky Chaikin, the kind of, you know, newly elected right wing um, school board member, said she believes the policy expands student expression and actually gives them the opportunity to express themselves in a way the school district does not have to let them do. 
right? This is like gaslighting language, right? Because she's making it sound like, oh, these are like, you know, freedom supporting, you know, free speech folks. They want everybody to be able to kind of say what they want. And matter of fact, the school district could be really restricted, but we're choosing to kind of ensure that everybody gets to say what they want. But we know that is not what's been happening in Bucks County schools or in school boards across the country. Right. We know that Pennsylvania, depending on which study and which year you're looking at, we are either number two or number three in the most amount of books that are being banned or censored or challenged right within schools. Right. We're on pace to set a record of censorship challenges that was set. Oh, I don't know. Last year, (laughs) 730 or something like that. Right. So you've got all this anti-LGBTQ stuff being promoted from the school, from these right-wing school board members. You've got like literally people who are, you know, seem like they're having like Newsmax being kind of funneled into their brains on a daily basis, showing up to school board meetings, spouting QAnon stuff, talking about how they're going to place litter boxes in the hallways because what happens if a kid identifies as a cat? All that kind of nonsense, right? So the context is anybody who goes to these school board meetings, anybody who is following what is happening nationwide, um, with these right-wing attacks um, through school boards, knows full well that th- these folks got elected to su- kind of carry out an agenda, a right-wing agenda against the left, right? What they perceived as the left. It's not even like the freaking left. It's just basically they want everyone to be straight, white, heterosexual Christians. <laughs> and if you deviate from that, then somehow you're being political. But their advocacy for that stuff is never kind of challenged, right? I mean, that's what's going on. So anyways, there's this one section. So they say, okay, they looks like they're revising this policy on student expression to count just for flyers. We shall see. We shall see. Um, This teacher advocacy part of the article was the one that really just kind of made me just sit back for a couple things. And then I've, I did a little kind of poking around and I found out some more stuff that I found more disturbing um, for a bunch of reasons. So here, here's this section on teacher advocacy um, in this article. It says, another policy proposal addresses teacher advocacy, in quotes, and states that school employees, quote, shall not engage in advocacy activities, unquote, during work hours on school property and must, quote, retain their personal views and remain neutral on advocacy-related matters, unquote. Big question here is what counts as advocacy, right? What do they mean by advocacy? And because it's not clearly defined, right, um, then it's going to mean what the school board members want it to mean, right? So what's considered just kind of just people talking and what's considered advocacy. And you get some of this here. So board members have said that the policy was drafted in response to a small number of teachers advocating for what they called social and political causes in class. Pointing as an example, this is this is key, pointing as an example to teachers distributing forms asking for students preferred pronouns and permission to share the information with their parents. Okay. So now you've got a teacher who 
is just asking students what their preferred pronouns are, right? Not telling the students that they should do X, Y, or Z, not telling them there's a correct course of action, but responding to what they know is happening um, like with some students. And they know, the teachers know, that LGBTQ kids, students, right, who, who are maybe not have come out yet or things like this, they're also at the highest risks of doing poorly in school, of bullying, and of suicide. And so there's small gestures that one could do to kind of feel like the classroom is welcome. Now, for example, I like all the time when I'm kind of in different meetings that this kind of comes up, doesn't come up every meeting I'm ever at, but I don't feel like someone's trying to convince me of something if they ask me my pronouns and I'm saying, you know, he, him, right? Therefore, everybody knows what's the big deal, right? I mean, I don't understand what the problem is, right? So the only reason it's a problem, right, is because there's some kids whose registration says, I don't know, Jim, but they want to be called Emily. They want to be called Jennifer, whatever. Right. And that gives those students an opportunity to just kind of say, hey, yeah. And then there's that question. Do I have the opportunity? You know, um, can I have the permission to share with your parents? Because maybe that kid has not come out to their parents yet. Right. Maybe that kid is kind of like working through stuff, trying to understand where they're at, is trying something out and say, no, I'm not. You know, maybe their parents are abusive. So they might say, OK, yes, it says that it says he. It says that I'm a boy in my registration. I would like to be called by a like girl's name, <laughs> right? But no, you don't have permission to share that with my parents. Then the teacher is clear, right? No big deal. But what they're saying here is that this is advocating social and political causes in class. So what they're saying is the, the, the acknowledgement that there are non-straight, heterosexual, like, white Christians in the class, the acknowledgement of that, the acknowledgement that some of those kids might be trans, that acknowledgement itself is advocacy. But they talk about it in ways that are like, Oh, we're just trying to make sure everybody's getting along. And look, there's just a few teachers who are who are who are, who are using the classroom to kind of like like push their political agenda. Really? Okay. So the policy also follows the board decision last spring to scrap the district's diversity, equity, and inclusion program, with some members concerned over an increase in activism in the classroom. Right? They never will talk about what are they actually what do they mean by this. Do they have, is, are there a, a whole series of complaints that have kind of, have ushered forward? You know, is it like a flood of, you know, um, teachers marching into their classrooms with signs, right? Kind of demanding students stand up and say, pledge allegiance to, I don't know, our communist future. <laughs> is that what they're talking about? Of course not. We know what they mean by that. We're saying that, oh, my God, there's teachers who acknowledge, is, acknowledge that racism still exists, that acknowledge 
that gender roles are much more fluid in the world. That, oh, I don't know, the United States, as part of its founding, committed genocide against American Indians. That there was slavery, and it was slavery, and the slaves did like it, <laughs> right? I mean, this is like, this is unbelievable. So that's crazy. So here you go. So quote, this is, uh, this is from the draft now. Neutrality in both curriculum and classroom instruction is paramount to creating an atmosphere of inclusiveness where all students, regardless of their beliefs and opinions, feel welcome. Do you agree with that? Sure. And this is how they work it, right? Neutrality, both curriculum and thing, right? So for example, as you all know, if you tune into this show, right, um, I have pretty strong beliefs, right? And I teach, right? And I teach in things that we, we don't kind of steer away from issues. We don't try to pretend that the world is kind of some sort of like, I don't know, whitewashed, scrubbed down, bleached out version of itself. No, because we're in the real world, right? The real world is complex, contradictory, right? And that's the world that we live in. That's the world that education has to take place and so on, right? All that stuff. So, but do I try to get my students, right, to believe what I believe? No, right? Matter of fact, right, my goal is to, when the classroom situation is to push, them to articulate kind of how they're coming out, how they're understanding things and so on. As a matter of fact, I have been known to say to, to say to students in my class, like, look, I don't want to hear my position mirrored back to me. You know why? Right? Because I know my position already. I'm not interested in you telling me what my position is because I already know what it is. And matter of fact, if you try to do that, Guess what? I'm going to know that you're just doing it just because you think it's what I want to hear. But I'm telling you right now, it's not. And how do I know that? Well, because it's my position. I know it better than you. <laughs> right. And we talk about in a democracy, you need to have a variety of people kind of in kind of with different perspectives, different angles on stuff. And yes, there's going to be conflict. But that is what democracy is. Democracy is not faith. Democracy is based in the real world and working out really naughty issues among people who do not necessarily agree. And part of what schooling is about is practicing the skills for that kind of society. If I start removing the places where I get to practice those skills of talking with people of differences, of having to kind of kind of grapple with my own position in relationship to other people's, to consider other people who are different from me as as like having a legitimate kind of state of or claim on what they of what they believe. Right? Because somebody comes out as trans, that has no impact on me. Unless I believe that everybody has to be like me. Hey, Nick, what's happening? That's the only, that's the only time it matters. The only thing that a democracy asks for is that people are going to be open to hearing other people and being kind of willing to debate hard issues. Or just kind of understand that there's a whole world of differences out there. This is especially true in a kind of multi-ethnic, multicultural democracy like we have. And it's hard. It's not easy. 
So when they say that kind of stuff, it's just pretty crazy. So, okay, so here we go. Back to, back to the text. Okay, quote, because personal beliefs about political, social, religion, sexual orientation, and gender identity are often deeply personal and of supreme importance to many members of the school community, staff members should not advocate their personal beliefs in the classroom. What does that mean exactly? If I say that everybody should be treated as a human being regardless of their gender status, is, is that advocating for my belief? Am I suppressing the person that believes that somebody who doesn't conform to gender norms should be gassed? Is that what we're talking about? Am I somehow oppressing the fascists in the class? Hmm? Is that what's going on? I have this this little flyer. Right? This is kind of right by my uh, my desk. I keep it up here. Right? It's called the Paradox of Tolerance by philosopher Carl Popper. Popper, Popper. Sorry. Right. And I'll just kind of read this. The first the first scene here goes. You know, should a tolerant society tolerate intolerance? Right. And they're kind of actually crossing out a, a swastika, and say, "You want more tolerance? Respect my ideas," says the Nazi. Right. Karl Popper says no. A tolerant society should not tolerate intolerance. It's a paradox, but unlimited tolerance can lead to the extinction of tolerance. When we extend tolerance to those who are openly intolerant, like, let's give them a chance. Let's give the Nazis a chance. Let's give those fascists a chance. Like, let's try to understand and kind of understand the humanness of the kind of the white supremacists, right? And allow them some space in our culture too as well. When that happens, the tolerant ones end up being destroyed and tolerance with them. Any movement that preaches intolerance and persecution must be outside the law. As paradoxical as it seems, defending tolerance requires not to not tolerate the intolerant. And this is from his book, The Open Society and Its Enemies. All right. Now, I have to say, I'm not like, you know, some kind of huge Karl Popper fan that I just like believe everything he believes, right? Got problems with Karl Popper, said, Karl Popper says and all this. But I think that's real. That's an important thing. And that's one of those kind of, he calls it a paradox. I saw what it feels like a contradiction, right? On the one hand, if we want to live in a tolerant society, then we have to basically say those people who are intolerant, right? Those people who believe that there are only this specific kind of gender system works and anyone else who deviates from that must be destroyed. Those people should be outside the law. You see what I'm saying? So when this says, okay, look, staff members should not advocate their personal beliefs when they're talking about issues of political, social, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity, and so on like this. I'm not in the classroom. These teachers are not saying, it's not to like say, okay, we are going to tell students. Like if, to, if the teacher goes out and says like, okay, you have to believe that every, that, that nobody has, um, I don't know. You have to believe that kind of like, there are, I, I don't even know what, the, what an example is it, but if I had to kind of believe or that you, if, if you are a good person, you have to vote for Democrats, right? If I were to do that, that's out of line. That's clearly out of line. 
right? Because that's a political decision that has to be made. However, as a teacher, if I'm talking about an issue, say, for example, of, I don't know, school lunch funding, I need to be able to talk about the range of ideas and range of positions in that and what's at stake in there. And I should encourage students to be able to kind of hear the differences. I'm not there to tell them this is the correct answer and that therefore you need to believe what I believe. Ironically, the people who have told me that in my own history and what I hear from my own students are not the ones who are supporters of democracy. They're ones that believe in very rigid religious situations or are these kind of like the old white guy's idea about kind of traditional literature. There's only one way to read Shakespeare, for example. There's only one correct interpretation, right? The originalist, right, in the Supreme Court. Same kind of deal. There's only one thing, and these people from on, on high are the ones who have the answers, and so you need to believe what they believe. The only time that I've run into these are not the ones that, who are tolerant. It's the ones who are intolerant. Does that mean I agree with it? No. <clears throat> but we got to be able to kind of, kind of do that. So, okay, so here it goes. So no action on the policy is likely, at least until October, according to Bolton, who's the superintendent. Um, he wants to make sure that our curriculum is balanced, neutral, and comprehensive. Like, this is kind of like there was no problem. There was no issue, right? There was not massive uprisings and complaints until this right-wing agenda started kind of pushing this as an issue within school boards because they want to kind of move it more to the right. Anyways, in the eyes of, of Withold Walzak, legal director of the Pennsylvania ACLU, the draft is, quote, still vague and overbroad, and he questioned how to find advocacy, exactly what I raised before. Such guidelines may be difficult for teachers to follow. Quote, under those circumstances, when, if you get it wrong, you can get in trouble and lose your job, you're going to stay completely away from it, right? You're going to put a chilling environment on discussion in the classroom. In a September meeting, board president Joan Collins said teachers should still advocate for students' educational purposes. Oh, okay. So I should still advocate for them and their educational purposes. So let's say that they have a disability. Do I advocate for them? If I believe that that somebody with a disability has every right to kind of um, for accommodations to make sure that they get an education, is that my personal belief that I'm advocating for in the classroom? Is that what's going on? Or is that allowable? Well, you have to consult, you know, the Oracle June, Joan Cullen to be able to kind of figure out what that is. What they mean by these things, they want to use these words to mean what they mean to them and use them against their opponents they just disagree with. This is dangerous stuff. <clears throat> Quote, we're talking about different kinds of advocacy which should be best left to parents or guardians or families, she said. Like what? So I want to use the example of, you know, because we know this is true. I want to use the example of a student who is coming out, right? They're finding out they're, you know, they're gay or lesbian or, say, bisexual or that they, they may be questioning kind of their gender identity, all the, whatever it might be. Put it on that whole spectrum. And let's say that their parents are completely intolerant, right? And their parents, every time they find out, or say, it, say it's a boy, every time the boy kind of does something which the, which the parents consider to be like effeminate, to use like those ancient terms, right? That the father whips the kid. 
right? We know this happens. So when Joan Cullen says, okay, this is something that should be left to parents, guardians, or families, play that out. She's basically saying, yep, that's their choice. You want to beat the kid? They're going to beat the kid. Not us to decide. Where does that kid go? Who does he talk to? Who does he talk to? Now, this is the part that literally made my jaw drop to the to the desk. <laughs> the last line, right? It's the last line. I don't know if you can see it before the heading. It says, the Pennsylvania State Education Association declined to comment on the policy. The teachers union has no comment. PSEA and in this case, Penridge Education Association, PAA, they are the representatives of the teachers. They are their union representatives. And a situation in which a policy that comes from the school board is going to put a chilling effect on their education, putting a chilling effect on what they're going to be willing to do in the classroom, is going to restrict their educational professionalism. It's going to quietly threaten them. They have no comment on. You know, I've said this on the floor, and look, let me be clear about a couple things here. I bleed union, okay? I bleed union, meaning that I'm a member of a union. I'm an advocate for unions. I think all workers should be organized. Right? Period. Why? Because I don't believe that any, I don't care if it's a CEO of a company. I don't believe it's the president of the United States. I don't believe it's, if it's like anyone, any kind of boss situation that has the control, has the power over everyone else, that they should be left to kind of choose as they will. And we should beg for their goodwill for what we get. Nope. I believe that at the very minimum, workers of all stripes should have a direct impact, a direct say upon their working conditions. Right. And I go further than that because it's not just shouldn't be just my like what I get paid, but it should also be the entire conditions. You know, we want bread. Yes, but we want roses, too. Yes, we think we should be paid what we deserve, what we deserve. And we get to have a say in that, not just what you tell us we deserve. But also, we should have control over our working conditions. And in the case of teachers, teachers are the ones who have been educated. They're the professionals. They're the experts. They're the ones who should be in the driver's seat. They've got to be able to make some of these decisions. Now, does that mean they make them just completely without consultation with everybody else? No. That's what the negotiation process is about. That's what you kind of get into. And I, I know what the deal is, right? You know, we know that the Supreme Court a few years back, right, basically passed a, uh, or basically made a ruling that took away, right, the, um, the right for uh, unions to collect fair share dues, right? Which basically means, right, because here's what happens, right? If you get a union contract, right, 
you have to decide as an individual worker at that at that shop, right? So a school board, so a school, for example, you have to decide whether or not you are going to be a member of that union, right? So I could be, you know, somebody who is um, opposed to unions, could somebody who does not want to be part of a union, right? But I want to work at that job. So I decline to be a member of the union, which means I do not pay full dues for the union, right? However, the way the law works is that even though I'm deciding that I am not going to pay for the union, right? even though I, I say I don't want to be a member, what happens in that situation is that I still get the benefits of everything in that contract that the union fought for, negotiated for. So I'm saying I don't want to be a union, but sure, yeah, I'll take the medical insurance. Yes, absolutely, I'll take the protections. Yes, if I have a problem, yes, I want to use the grievances, and you're going to have to represent me. And the union does have to represent that person. The union has to fight for the union workers and the non-union workers alike. If there's a violation of the contract, it doesn't matter what your status is. So basically, there's a portion of those dues, a portion of the, of the money that you would pay as a member, right, most of that money goes to defending the contract, negotiating the contract, defending your rights. Right? All that's regardless of your union or non-union. So you have this thing that's called fair share. Right? And fair share means that you pay a proportion of those dues you have to pay to the union, right? The stipulation is none of that could go towards political advocacy. Right. So some years, for example, my fair share dues, I mean, I'm, I'm a union member, but fair share dues in my union that might kind of kind of be like, you know, 80 uh, percent. Sometimes it goes as high as 90 percent. If there's not a big, you know, it kind of alters each year. You get a statement in the mail that says this is the amount that's tax deductible. If you're a fair share person, you get a, a statement about what percentage of your dues are and where it's going to. Right. But that was just ru ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, by the right wing Supreme Court. Right. OK, so that happens. So now what happens is public sector unions went into a, a tailspin right? because they were freaking out because they were going to say, oh, look, if somebody basically says I don't need to pay anything, but I still get all the benefits of a union. Right. So I can basically I make I'm going to get that union contract, but I don't have to pay a dime. So I'm going to get more money from myself. Right. They can still do that. So these public sector unions and teachers unions in particular started freaking out. They're like, oh, my God, we're going to lose all these people. And the reason why they were freaking out about it is because for decades, there has been a slide and union leadership into what we might call business unionism or service unionism, where there's the union and then there's the members. When you talk about the union in your brain, you're thinking about the leadership people that are off someplace else, not you and your coworkers. Right. And when you say the union is here, you mean, oh, the representatives came in, they drove in from wherever they work and they kind of came in here, the representatives. Those people are employees of the of the union. They're not me. They're not fellow teachers. Sometimes they might have been at one point, but now they work for the union. So the union is this other entity. Right. And then some union leadership started acting like that, too. And they basically said, we want to make sure that our members or we want to make sure that these teachers are going to continue to be members. How do we do that? We, we service them. We kind of get them good contracts, right? And we don't ask them to do anything else, right? Because we are maintaining our thing and we are the experts in what we do in the union. And so they are not, you know, they are just kind of paying members. So we do this on behalf of the union members. And the exchange is like, members are like, well, 
okay, I kind of wish I had some more input, but you know, I guess if they're doing a good job in a contract and I'm getting a decent pay and I got medical insurance, okay, great. I'll support them for that reason. But there's a growing gap, right? A growing gap, gap in skill levels. And when you have a now a decade long, like overt, like frontal assault on unions, right? Public sector workers, private sector workers, the working class in general, when you see that assault on people and on unions, the unions are unprepared for the kind of organizing that needs to take place, right? The union leadership has wanted their members to be quiet, right? They didn't like it when their members got all riled up. They didn't teach their members how to organize their workplace. They didn't teach their members about how to advocate publicly for education, how to push back in your workplace. And they, they said to them, hey, we're not going to stand behind you. And then the union itself was like, well, we're just kind of, you know, we're kind of like, a, we're, we're, we've got a good relationship with the people on the other side. So, you know, we don't want to jeopardize that relationship because that's how we get good contracts. Now we're seeing the people on the other side, the school boards themselves, they could care less. As a matter of fact, they're anti-union. They're coming for the unions. And now unions are in a situation where you've got a lot of these old style leadership folks who say, oh, God, there's all these controversial issues. we got to shut our mouths. Because if we, we weigh in on it, we might lose some members or we might upset the board and they're not going to give us like their, our good contract. What are we going to do? That, that is an understanding of power, of worker power, of being like the relationship, union leadership or negotiators, the good relationships they have with management. If they can buddy buddy with them and they could kind of, you know, be their friends and they could kind of go out and have a beer together and all that kind of stuff. That's how they get the job done. It's the backroom deal model of unionism. When we know full well, if you read any of the history of the United States about the labor movement in the United States, workers have never been given anything out of the goodness of the hearts of like management. They fought, bled and died for every right that we have had. But we've we've fallen into a lot of unions have fallen into this malaise where they believe that, no, we're just going to keep the old guy going and we just got to hold on to what we got. And we're at this point, it's a crisis point where if union members, if teachers themselves don't start organizing within their workplaces, they're going to lose their good contracts. These school boards are coming for the teachers don't like mark my words. The Penridge contract is up in 2023, June 2023. You see the same thing that's going on over in the Central Bucks, where Paul Martino basically called out and basically saying, teachers' contracts coming up like there. Oh, you and you got endorsed by the teachers' union. So you and you should recuse yourself from the contract negotiations because he's an anti anti-union guy. And I have to say, I have tried over several years, and again, I'm not going to say I was going and kind of batting down the hat, you know, batting down the, you know, the doors of the teachers unions, but I've reached out to teachers during contract negotiations. I've reached out to PSEA. I've reached out to other folks um, affiliated with union. I put out multiple calls like, hey, any teachers, any union member, teacher union members who um, let me know what's going on. I've like sent email and, you know, a couple of times I got, oh, that's great to know. Thank you for your support. But that's it. Right. Nothing. And I don't know what to make of that. 
And then meanwhile, the thing that gets the, that got the bee in my bonnet initially is that PSEA is playing this, has played, we'll see what, where this ends up this year, has played the role of, you know, okay, we're going to try to kind of like, we're going to play both sides of the fence. So we're going to endorse Fitzpatrick, right? PSEA has endorsed an anti-abortion school privatization, right? Trump voting Republican over and over and over again because they don't want to get in the bad graces of the Fitzpatrick machine. Right? Jenny says this is why PSEA gives money on both sides. Yeah, that's true. PSA gives money on both sides, right? I understand the game and how the game is played, but when you give a political endorsement, here's what happens. Right. When PSEA is one of the major players, right, when it comes to um, kind of more localized politics and funding, like on broadly educational issues side of things. Right. And when they give money and they kind of mostly because they're trying to make sure that they're going to get their issues heard on both sides. I get that. I understand that. But also what happens is PSEA um, organizes a lot of get out the vote stuff. They actually help support a series of other organizations for get out the vote. Right. So their money is kind of invested in kind of a whole bunch of, you know, a, a, a whole a network of folks that are, you know, advocating on behalf of kind of education or all this kind of stuff. Right. And that's all fine and good. All organizations do that. I'm not I think that's the way it should operate. But here's what happens now when PSEA now then endorses Brian Fitzpatrick. And if you ask people in the like in the movement. Right. About what has happened in terms of like the, the support for particular candidates, particular Democratic candidates. When PSEA jumps into uh, the fray and basically says, hey, we endorse Brian Fitzpatrick. All those other organizations that might get some money from PSEA or are want to have a good relation for PSEA, they leave. So suddenly the money, the organization, the structure and the people on the ground for get out the vote disappear. And I know I'm picking on PSEA right now, but this is just because of this particular article, right? We could say the same thing about Pet Environment. Pet Environment played the same game with uh, Brian Fitzpatrick, right? We could go down a list of organizations if we want, kind of like ostensibly on the kind of like center to left, who have played this game and that are, are doing it in a, in a, in a way that is, is negative. So all that money goes out, right? And then people are left to just try to try to put it all together, right? This has been part of a dynamic in Bucks County for a long time now. The question is, at this stage of the game, when teachers are being directly attacked, where is the public voice of the union? My guess, and I would love to have somebody from PSEA come on. Right. From one of the kind of, uh, you know, and Bucks County come on and kind of talk to me about this and help me understand better. Right. To tell me why I'm wrong and say that the reason why um, PSEA is not coming out with public statements right now is because, well, they're worried because then if some of their members are Republicans and so on. Yeah, I get it. Right. Some of your members are Republicans. Right. Maybe even a kind of fair percent. But at what point do you take a stand and say this is what we need to defend education at when? How is it that you have stopped educating your members on the need to fight for academic freedom, for example? Where did that go? 
So all that goes in. And I have to say, I wanted to see today. So I was just like, you know, this that was really that was upsetting to me when I read that. Because I'm like, how could you have no comment on this? I mean, I get, I, you know, even if you wanted to be wishy-washy in what you're going to say, how can you have no comment on a policy that is basically threatening your teachers, your members? And on the flip side of it, like anytime you flip, you flip that around, as I can tell you this too as well, is my own union falls into the same kind of stuff. The only solution here is for members to organize themselves to start organizing in caucuses. They did this down in Philly for um, for a bit, the Caucus of Working Educators. Great organization. Basically ran candidates, basically ran union candidates because they wanted to change the leadership in the union. They wanted to basically get members involved. They wanted to have an organizational structure to the, not this service model where people in the kind of like, you know, more highly paid positions within the union are the ones who do all the decisions and you just kind of like, you know, go down here. No, you're out in the community. You're, you're organizing. You're kind of talking to family members is that the teachers are organizing in such a way that it's going to be clear that they are the ones on the ground that are connected to the students. They are the ones on the ground that are support the family. They are the ones like in the community that make education happen. So when it comes time for a union vote, right, the families or the people in that district, they're not looking up at some, you know, some person who's who's like a representative of the union in some sort of office someplace. No, they're thinking about the teachers in the community, that teacher that showed up at the door that helped their kid. Right. And that's what they did to caucus of working educators, right? And you see this in a bunch of caucus. They did the Chicago Teachers Union. They had a huge strike that took place. That's what they did. Social movement unionism. That's what they did. And until members organize themselves, it's my belief, right, to push back against this kind of malaise in their leadership or the, the, the lack or the unwillingness to take the stand on things, Right. Then this will continue. And why this is concerned for me is because you're going to reach a particular point in which there is no point of return. Is that the lack of taking a stand has made people cynical enough, has made people kind of like feel like, look, there's nothing I could do. I'm despairing. Nothing. There's nothing's going to change it. It's just going to keep on doing this. And so they go back and guess what happens? More people leave the union and the union collapses. And if you don't think that the right wing doesn't think about this all the time, about a way of kind of driving these wedges and kind of destroying the union for the frontal assault and through kind of a war of attrition, if you don't think that's going on, you're nuts. I've seen it again and again and again. And it's not just me. Just read some recent labor history since like 2009 about some of the attacks that have gone against unions. We're lucky at this point in history, however, is that we have counter models. We have the rise of the Amazon labor union. We have the kind of Starbucks, uh, Starbucks workers union. We're seeing organizing at unprecedented levels, right? At least in our lifetimes. That gives a counter to this. So we saw what happened in Kentucky when the state tried to kind of destroy kind of like education and fire all these teachers in a state, right? Where it was illegal for those teachers to strike. Right. In a right to work state, those teachers organized and they went on strike anyways. And they won. And they did it because they organized. And guess what? The union leadership was against the strike until it started to work. Then suddenly they had their come to Jesus moment. They're like, oh, yeah, we support the people on strike. Yeah. But they had to be drag kicking and screaming there. Right. 
institutions have a way of doing this kind of stuff. They want to solidify the organizational structure, that hierarchical organizational structure, and the people at the top want to tell the people at the bottom that they don't know what they're talking about, and they want the people at the bottom to stay relatively quiet so that they can handle things up here, and there's a kind of growing disparity that happens. That happens all the time in institutions. What we always have to do is revitalize those institutions by kind of, especially in a democratic organization like a union, the people need to be involved. Members need to be involved, right, actively. So anyways... So that's that thing was going on. Now, there's other things in this article, too, as well. They talk about, you know, they go and they, they say that, you know, these, you know, anti-LGBTQ stuff where the Penridge basically wanted uh, the rainbow flags taken down for classrooms and all this. Um, that That's not going away either. And it looks like over the next couple months, we're going to see this um, consistently on the agenda for school boards. Um, so we have to watch that. So why am I telling you all this stuff tonight, right? So why is that important? And why do I guess say I'm going to look at a couple articles? So I, I wrote about this in, uh, I'm sorry, I, I mentioned this in the show notes, right? And talked about it at the beginning of the, um, at the very beginning of the show. And I teach this class at Kutztown called Activist Writing Media, right? And so we look at the relationship between kind of social movement media and social movements, right? Um, we have to, we look a little bit at some of the kind of the strategies and the tactics and some of the, um, the studies and looking at how social movements work and how they're effective and um, some of the ways that, um, uh, you know, the cycles of social movements, a whole bunch of stuff like this. And then we consider, well, looking at these organizations, um, whether the media is generated by the movement itself, whether it's independent publications that are kind of broadly affiliated with the, uh, with a movement, um, critical voices, a whole bunch of stuff like this. So that's kind of what the course is about, looking at that, that those interactions. Um, and tomorrow, actually, we're going to be reading this one piece. Um, it's by this guy, Cory Doctorow. Um, it's from his, it's a really short piece. Um, he tends to write these kind of really short pieces, which are pretty cool. Um, you know, he's a, uh, science fiction writer. He's a blogger. He's a tech activist and so on. Um, you can check out, um, all, you can check out his stuff at, at pluralistic.net. Um, you can check him out, follow him on Twitter at, um, at Doctoro, um, D-O-C-T-O-R-O-W, um, and all this. And there's a link in the show notes to this. Um, but let me read you a little bit of this and, and say why I think this was, this is good. I mean, it wasn't intentional that all this stuff would be coming together right now, but here you go. So he says, back in 20, um, 2016, I coined the term peak indifference to describe a political phenomenon when people who have denied an urgent problem begin to self-radicalize, not because of activists or public education, but because the problem has caught up with them personally. Right. Rick Smith from the Rick Smith show um, had a different version of this, a slightly different version. of this. We call it radical self-interest. Right. At that point when you can't deny the problem anymore, you've been indifferent for so you hit this peak of indifference because you are forced by circumstances um, to grapple with um, the urgent problem. Right. Um, and he says, as I've written here before, a neat microcosm of peak indifference is smoking. Even if you convince yourself that tobacco isn't bad for, that bad for you, if you keep smoking long enough, you will likely come to understand that it is very bad for you because stage four lung cancer is convincing in a way that even the most persuasive talk with your family doctor can never be, right? That idea, when you hit stage four lung cancer, you are, you have to, you are forced to acknowledge, Right the how bad smoking is for you, right? The problem is, of course, is that if you're talking about that, and that's a kind of really a kind of, I guess, pointed example, because once you hit that stage four lung cancer, 
it's too late, right? Smoking and continuing to smoke and ignoring that. Yes, eventually the consequences come to you. And eventually you have to grapple with it. And eventually you have to kind of come to terms with it, right? Um, in one way or another. Um, but with stage four, that's beyond the point of no return, right? It's too late to have any meaningful difference. And this is true, what Doctor argues in this, is that across things, so if you think about nuclear disarmament, climate action, inequality, all these things, the rise of fascism, right, you know, in this country, is that by the, you know, if you ignore it and say, ah, you know, whatever, just these few marginal people that are going on here, um, by the time they actually take over, right, then it's too late. So what, what Dr. O says is, foundationally, indifference is a predictable response to problems whose causal relationship is obscure for, example, obscure, for example, climate change. If you can't tell for sure that driving to the corner store for a pint of milk will cause you to drown in a deluge in 50 years, it's easy not to care about it, right? Um, the job of activists confronting this class of problem is to turn the indifference into opposition. That really is the challenge, right? It's kind of thinking about what that means. Um, and he puts another one, everyone whose house is washed away in a flood or whose town is incinerated by a wildfire becomes a client, a climate change partisan without having to be persuaded by an activist. Personal trauma is the ultimate persuader. As he says, the problem with relying upon peak indifference to mobilize a response to a problem are twofold. First peak indifference may arrive after the point of no return. When that happens, it's easy to turn to nihilism. Well, I guess my doctor was right all along. His cigarettes did give me a stage four lung cancer. Guess it's too late to quit now. <sighs> right? We think about climate change. It's the same thing, right? Well, oh, God. Yeah. Looks like, uh, whoa, those like several million people who died from heat in this one place. Oh, they're dead now. Yeah. Whoa, I guess they're right about climate. Whoop. Too much. Oh, well, oh, guess they're right about this. But I guess we should stop using fossil fuels. Oh, too late. The West Arctic ice sheet, Antarctic ice sheet just collapsed. And now we've got a series of runaway problems, right? I mean, that's the kind of idea. And there are some, you know, there's these people on the left. There's these some people on the left who kind of argue for this, you know, uh, they say that, okay, you have to wait for the crisis, right? You wait for the crisis and then you can act. Right. So our goal up until now is to either accelerate what the crisis is. Right. You know, they have to have more fossil fuels because it becomes such a problem that people will find it really act. But then it's too late. And then he says peak indifference doesn't in and of itself mobilize an effective response. Trauma can hinder reason. If your town is incinerated by a wildfire, it might inspire you to become an eco-fascist, advocating for zero immigration and conquest of high-lying territories abroad to protect you and your fellow Americans from the coming collapse of the um, ha um, habitable earth. This is one thing that I think I talked about last week or maybe on Friday, is that, you know, there are going to be massive amounts of climate refugees as a result of climate change. And when we hit that first tipping point, when you start to see, you know, whole countries flooded for and we're seeing it some of it right now in Pakistan, right? Third of the country underwater. There are going to be climate refugees. Right. So one version is that, oh, my God, this is coming. We need to prepare for these mass migrations. Right. We need to find ways to make sure that people are going to be have a fine safe. And we should do it now as opposed to as opposed to later. 
another version of that is the build wall version, right? That's the kind of eco fascist version. And my belief is that that is the most likely pathway at this point. Because when the best that we can do in this country, for example, is pass legislation that is going to kind of like encourage the market to do better, it's not enough. And then you hear some of these kind of like, you know, Democrats say, well, you know, okay, we're going to get to a point where nobody's going to be able to ignore it like anymore. True. But the people right now who are in the position to respond to that situation are not going to be progressives. They're going to be the authoritarians. They are going to be the eco-fascists, the ones who say, yes, because all the people from these non-American countries, these non-Christian countries um, are going to be forced to flee because of climate, because we are the kind of grace land or whatever. We have to close our borders. We have to militarize our borders to ensure that they stay out. We got to keep out those people who are fleeing. We have to topple the Statue of Liberty right, and erase her book. Give me your tired, you know, <laughs> your poor. We need to eliminate that. We need to sink that into the memory hole because we are no longer that. The Statue of Liberty is dead, right? Long live the castle wall, <laughs> right? That's kind of that thing. We've seen this come up, right? You know, we saw the, the mass killing in Christchurch, New Zealand. That, there was part of that manifesto that was released there was, was exactly along these lines. You're seeing right now in Europe, you just saw a far-right neo-fascist party basically win a huge percentage of the vote. I forget what the final percentages are. But um, in Sweden, why? Well, guess what? Kind of lily white Sweden, right? As good as its social infrastructure is, they basically are saying, yep, we want to keep that social infrastructure for ourselves, which means we need to keep out these brown people who are fleeing the climate catastrophes or wars or whatever it might be, right? We just saw another, like in Italy, right? The woman who's taking over kind of in Italy, who's going to be the next prime minister of Italy, is basically as far right as Mussolini, has openly, that party has openly called like what the... um brother or something or other. Um, they're openly basically long for the days of a return of that strong leader in Italy. And now they've got it. Right? So that's that point. You cannot wait for the crisis to do the work for us. Right? We cannot wait for that. We have to, we have to do it now. And again, lots of people are doing the unorganizing. Let's be clear. Well, Corey Doctorow says the activist mission implied by this analysis is twofold. One, hasten the moment of peak indifference, right? Foment protest, art, especially speculative fiction, either utopian, we can do this, or dystopian, we must do this or else. Like conduct education or do anything else that makes the distant risk more present in the minds that still indifferent, right? And we've seen this in our communities, right? We're seeing this starting to happen, and it's so freaking amazing, Right? And the question is, we're in this race, right? Because as, as all that is happening, right, as, you know, these, these the fomenting the protests, the education, the organizing that that's going on, we are in the position where that other side is occupying the institutions where, that pulls all the levers of power. So it's like, not only do we need to do the education, not only do we need to do, like, you know, the organizing, but we also then have to ensure that we take over these levers of power. And the second thing is the direct response of people who are mobilized by trauma into productive directions, countering eco-fascist narratives of lifeboat rules with climate justice, remediation, and land healing, 
right? So that idea that we need to find these places, find these things where we're kind of like showing what else can be done, showing that that other world can be possible, right? I, I'm just going to forget. I had this down. I was just searching for it at one point. I don't know what happened to it, but um, I was reading this article earlier when they're, they're giving examples of what um, what people are actually doing and some positive examples. Um, I, and there's this one community. I just can't remember where it was, right? But it's going to be impacted by... Um, um, by by rising seas, right? And it's going to have a, a huge negative impact and it's going to be flooded. So what this, and this is a locale, right? This is not statewide, this is locally. And what they're doing uh, in this one kind of district, they're recognizing that their area is going to be underwater. So they're, they've already started putting money into this particular climate resistance fund. And um, they're going to be buying out the homes of the people who live in those areas, right? So the, you know, the municipality is going to do that, right? And at the same time, they're in a higher ground elsewhere. They're bought land or are buying land, and they are going to be building homes for those people to relocate to. And it is tax dollars that are doing this, right? And the community is on board with this. It's an amazing moment, right? Where, But, you know, it's a little tiny one. It's by no means, it's by no means enough right but it's showing what we could do and what we need to be doing so those kind of examples are absolutely are absolutely critical right that's why cory doctorow means by you know take you got to counter those echo fascist narratives with this idea about climate justice remediation and land healing like that the conversion of these kind of mass factory farms into kind of like sustainable kind of like mixed-use agriculture for example Right. Bringing more communities um, kind of involved with farming and get us kind of um, bringing the food sources closer to where we at. investment in rail. Right. Instead of more cars. Right? All this kind of stuff goes on. So. Anyways, wow, I spent a whole lot of time on that. Sorry, everybody. Um, thanks for all the comments. Yeah, Nick and Jenny and Ross and uh, everybody here tonight. Um, I thought I was going to talk about a lot more than that, but I'm already looking at the time like, holy, holy crap. Yes. Trains, Nick. Trains, trains, trains. Um, the one other thing I wanted to say, and I'll put a link for this. I'm, I'm just not going to have a ton of time to do this tonight, but there's this little book here. Uh, it's called Unruly Rhetorics. Um, and I put a link to the PDF, uh, again, in the show notes tonight. Uh, it's for an article that I wrote, um, a chapter I wrote for this book um, called We Are Not All in This Together, A Case for Advocacy, Factionalism, and Making the Political Personal. And... Um, here, I'll read one paragraph for you and then kind of give you a little concluding thing here. So why I thought this was important just in terms of our orientation to the world. So in the wake of the Wisconsin uprising, this is in 2000, um, 2011, liberals such as Rod, so for those folks who might not remember, this is when you had uh, the governor of the state of Wisconsin was basically limiting um, uh, union rights, was um, trying to destroy public higher education, was removing um, rights from, you know, medical rights or, or access to kind of medical care for a whole bunch of people. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff. It was like the playbook of the far right um, Republican Party at that time. And it was swept into office by the Tea Party. And the response in Wisconsin, they basically... Um, took a uh, a page out of the book of what was happening um, in uh, Tahrir Square in Egypt, right, about, you know, this mass occupation. And so people converged on the capital, kind of led in part initially by some well-organized people at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which was, you know, Madison is where the capital is. 
and they occupied the capital for several weeks, right, to push back against these things. And that got termed the Wisconsin Uprising, right? It was a really amazing moment. Okay. But then you got Roger Hodge looking at these, you know, these union people and these farmers and these students and these activists, you know, occupying a state capital and protesting, sleeping on the floor, refusing to move, all this stuff. And, you know, the kind of like pearl clutching liberals uh, like Robert Hodge um, want to make sure that, you know, are, find that greatly distasteful. Right. And I'm not. OK, whatever. So here we go. So uh, liberals like Roger Roger Hodge, writing in Politico, urge fellow well-meaning folks to look to the Federalist Papers co-signer and fourth U.S. President James Madison. Hodge made the case that an American left, quote, seemingly bereft of principles, unquote, um, should seek to reclaim Madison's notion of Republican liberty and principle that, quote, derives its energy from the will of society and thus acts in the larger public interest, not in the narrow interest of a particular faction, whether composed of planters or financiers, unquote. Well-meaning for sure. Hodge closes his case with the following, quote, even our, in our unhappy political circumstances, most Americans retain a profound attachment to the Madisonian principles that were meant to animate our constitutional system. We may yet rediscover the common ground on which to build a coherent, public-spirited opposition to the narrow factionalism of our current two-party system, unquote. Hodge's critique of an American left, quote, bereft of principles, unquote, his longing for that common ground, his characterization of our current political circumstances as unhappy, his appeal to most Americans, and his use of the conditional may to hedge on a future common ground are all elements of a popular liberal sentiment with the Founding Fathers' twist. However, this kind of response to an open war against working families did more to discipline those bodies sleeping on the marble floors of the Capitol in Madison and similar mobilizations than it did, or does, help reinstate political common ground. In my mind, the appeal to Madison's warning against factions in our current political environment is a philosophical luxury if the goal is to defend democracy. The founding father who seems more appropriate to our unhappy times is not James Madison, James Madison, but Thomas Paine. Right. And I make a case in this that Thomas Paine, why that becomes important to reclaim what Thomas Paine does, um, was that. Thomas Paine was facing similar things. We know his book Appeal to the Reason, uh, Appeal to Reason was the most widely circulated and published um, book at the time. Um, it was, you know, in large part responsible for uh, spreading um, support for the American Revolution. Um, and um, he was someone who was arguing, right, had to argue with some, say, good meaning liberals who, um, you know, said, like, we agree with what you want, just not how you're going about it, right? That classic move that we see over and over again, right? We just want you to kind of be more respectful and just just, just wait your turn, right? It'll come, just going to be slow, right? Just being so rude, right? I mean, that's kind of these ideas. So there was, these, um, there was this thing called the Epistle to uh, the Quakers, where um, the Quakers were basically making this open appeal to basically not resort to violence in the revolution, right? Again, I want to be clear, we're not advocating violence here or things like this, but it was a kind of particular sentiment. And um, what basically t Thomas Paine basically said, look, the British have been slaughtering us, right? That's why people are upset. They've been taking things. They've been, they've been kind of stealing from us, 
right? They are the ones who are perpetuating the violence. And the longer we allow this to go on, right, the longer we can guarantee that that violence will continue. We need to stand up and resist so that we can stop the perpetual systemic violence so that we can have a democratic culture. All right. And I don't want to kind of waste too much of your time here with this, but the the whole point of here and what I start kind of talking about here is this idea that we see come up again and again. And I'm thinking about phrases and discussions that I think are important that all of us are having within kind of, say, in our communities and activist communities and so on, because it is so easy to discipline people by saying, look, you're just being so uncivil. Right. And we know there's a racial overtone to that, too, as well, because like when, when, when a black person gets upset. Right. Uh, guess what? Right. They're the angry black guy or the angry black woman. Right. And they get put into a category and their words don't have to be addressed. Right. When activists are kind of like fighting to try to, you know, climate activists, for example, we're legitimately like millions of people are going to die unless we have unless we have action. It's a crisis that requires serious response. And yet. We have governments, our government and across the world piss around. You have to be disruptive. The history of social movements in this country, in this world, the only way that workers, the mass amount of people have gotten things has been to disrupt the system as it is. And yes, it is uncivil. We read this book. uh, There's another one right here called This is an Uprising. Right. By uh, Mark and Paul Engler and Mark and Paul Engler. And and they talk about the kind of disruption and division. Right. How this is how social movements have to work. Right. You have to be aware that you are never going to please everybody. Right. And that we should be okay with that. Does that mean that we kind of alienate everybody? No. What it means is that you need to move people over to your way, and you have to disrupt the patterns of violence. The examples that they use in this is uprising. You look at ACT UP, right, and the AIDS crisis. People were dying, right? Tens of thousands of people are dying, dying, dying. And they're being ignored by medical professionals. They're being ignored by governments. They're being ignored by everyone else. So what do you do? Yes, they got they, they got into the House of Representatives and poured glitter on everybody, which I thought was one of the best moments that I've ever seen in my life, Right. They sat down in the streets and stopped traffic, right? They got in people's faces when people were afraid of people with AIDS, right? And yes, some people will never, ever like the folks from ACT UP. But you know what? After years of delay, a decade of delay, ACT UP comes in in a relatively short period of time. Suddenly, they're finding to see movements on the uh, the medical front for allowing the approval of these um, of these drugs to treat AIDS, right? They're looking for funding that's going on because they're not going to be denied. They're going to be forced to be seen. That's what Black Lives Matter was all about. The systemic violence of police killings has to stop. Wishing it away and hoping for the best and praying your hearts, you know, your 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 thoughts and prayers, wasn't getting it done, and it will never get it done. What that looks like in our communities right now, I'm not sure. I'm nervous about the midterm elections coming up, right? They're coming up in just over a month. So, yes, we have to get people elected. Yes, we have to do this. And I know there's amazing people that have been knocking doors nonstop. 
right, to make sure that these far right Republicans are not reelected and not kind of um, not reelected, number one, and that kind of a Democratic majority in the state house and the kind of um, uh, in Harrisburg um, it, it becomes even possible. And are those Democrats that we're kind of working to elect, are they, you know, the perfect candidates? I don't know. I've certainly been talking about on this program how I'm extraordinarily frustrated with Josh Shapiro's campaign. Right. And I'm already seeing where I'm going to fight that guy after he gets elected. But you'd be damn straight. I'm going to vote for him. <laughs> you'd be damn straight. I'm going to encourage other people to vote for him. Right. Because the alternative is a Christian nationalist fascist. <laughs> right. And guess what? I know that I will have zero leverage. You will have zero leverage against a Christian nationalist fascist. Right. But you might be able to push Josh Shapiro a little bit. Right. Because at least he makes claims to be supporting things like public education. Even while he gets kind of in bed with the uh, charter school people. But that's a whole other ballgame. Yeah, I did, Nick. Uh, I just saw that the uh, split endorsement from the cops with Shapiro and Oz. Um, yep. <clears throat> so uh, I just saw it right, actually shortly before the show. I saw this uh, came up on Twitter and I was like, oh, there you go. There you go. Right. And it, why does it? And I'll say it again. I say it every week. Uh, when we talk about Shapiro's campaign, the thing that concerns me is that um, while he's using the classic kind of like triangulation strategy that the Clintons are using, trying to move to the center and court Republicans and court the right wing and court the cops, is that what he risks doing is alienating the base that is going to be required to get out the vote. And I believe had Roe v. Wade not been overturned, I think his strategy would have sank him. Thankfully, well, it's a horrible thing to say thankfully, we're talking about the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But thankfully, in the wake of that, right, the women who have been organizing, and it is, again, primarily women who are organizing around, um, you know, getting candidates elected and around the issue about having their rights stripped away from them, right, that organization is what is going to um, potentially, that will be the deciding factor in my mind. Women organizing is what's going to kind of make this election. Women and their allies, right? You know, more broadly around that issue, particularly of abortion rights. So, so we shall see. But that's, I mean, that that's kind of where we're at. That's kind of where we're at. Anyways, I kept everybody long enough tonight. I'm just kind of yabbering on. I've got so much on my mind these days. You know, it's been, uh, um, it's just been one of those, it's been one of those times. It's like, uh, I, it, you know, Oh, thank you. Jenny Steven just said here, big rally in Doylestown on Wednesday at 5.30 um, to get out the vote and support pro-choice. Um, Jenny, if you got a link to that, you can drop in chat. That would be freaking awesome. Um, otherwise, I'll try to look it up and um, put it in, in chat afterwards. We should also give the shout out to the, um, the uh, um, Band Books Week parade that took place in Doylestown. We had folks that dressed up in the uh, giant cardboard books of Band Books to raise awareness about um, obviously about banned books, but in particular in the Central Bucks School District and throughout Bucks County, where um, books are being banned in our schools. Um, that was freaking awesome. 
Um, so yes, you've got lots of stuff going on in Doylestown. Uh, if anybody does have the link to that um, rally in Doylestown on Wednesday at 5.30, um, you could just please drop it in the chat. That'd be fantastic. Um, otherwise, I'll try to check it out and put it in afterwards. Um, but yes, stuff like this. Um, if you are uh, around on that Wednesday at 5.30, that'd be fantastic. Um, yeah, so man, did I yabber on tonight, huh? How about that? Um, it's been an interesting, interesting week. Um, it's been an interesting, interesting week, interesting weekend. And um, up there. So Jenny says, Old Bucks County Courthouse. I uh, will send more details. Uh, see my post. Okay, so it's at Old Bucks County Courthouse. Um, and then uh, we'll check more details out and then we'll kind of post it out. Um, make sure you follow us on Twitter at, at RC Press and then we'll make sure that gets tweeted out there too as well. Um, the other thing you should look, I didn't have enough time to talk about this tonight, but um, um, you remember uh, a couple of weeks back we had Jennifer Cohen on the show talk about rising Christian nationalism and things like this. Um, today um, in the Bucks County Beacon, she just published a, a phenomenal piece on this. Oh, and of course, wouldn't you know it, that I have got the... Uh, Somehow I managed to delete the title on it here. So hold on a second. Um, here it is. It's uh, she's got a new piece called Christo Christo fascist salutes displayed during recent Mastriano and Trump rallies. Um, she is continuing kind of digging down into how these kind of white nationalists and Christian nationalists are working together on stop the steal and are now kind of uh, kind of really you know, doing some creepy stuff that is very cultish and very troubling, especially given the concerns that we have about growing fascism and right-wing uh, extremism in this country uh, and this kind of, you know, in the state. So do check out her piece over on the Beacon um, that was just published today. Um, and again, check it out at buckscountybeacon.com. Um, it's right up in the kind of recent articles and you can check it out under, I think it's listed under opinion or the top five articles are out. So do check that one out too as well. And great work once again um, by Jennifer Cohen and everybody at the Beacon. Okay, anybody, everybody, anybody. <laughs> okay, everybody, um, I'm going to call it quits um, at this particular moment. I've uh, got an early start in the morning. Uh, make sure the kids are in bed. They had the day off today, so that kind of throws everything off a little bit too as well. Um, here we go. So, everybody, um, this is Kevin Mahoney, founder and creator of Raging Chicken. Um, you can help support this show. You can help support all the work that we do. Um, so all the work that we do. And uh, head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress and you become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Uh, thank you, Jenny. Um, I will um, I will get that and I will tweet it out. Uh, thank you so much for the info. Thank you, everybody, who tuned in tonight. Staying up. And all you who are doing that organizing, man. See ya.